ask it about a hundred more times over the next 30 or so minutes, so get ready. And then we're going to dive in, and I'm also going to give you a one-word answer that, I, again, I hope you're ready for throughout. The question is simple. Is God bigger than your situation, your circumstance, or your weakness? Yeah, you say that, but wait, because I don't want you to say it right now. I want you to know it in the bottom of your heart, from the depth of your soul, that AIC will live differently that we will live in that truth, we won't just give it lip service. Because I think on Sundays it's really easy to say, yes, God is bigger than my circumstance. But what happens when we wake up one Monday morning? We are riddled with anxiety, fear, and pain. And that makes me wonder, is God really as big as we say he is? So let's look today at how big is our God. The second is there's an answer. And I tell the story, when I was a youth pastor, I would teach Sunday school to a group of middle school students. So that's grades 6, 7, and 8, 12, 13, and 14-year-olds, depending on where you went to school, that should have them all covered. Um, and every Sunday morning, these kids would show up, all hopped up on a drink called Mountain Dew. Do you know what Mountain Dew is? Mountain Dew is, in America, one of the most, this was before Red Bull. I'm old, uh, so Red Bull wasn't a thing then. So this was kind of one of the most popular caffeine drinks you could find. So you put that, at least two cans, in the body of a 12-year-old, and then you try to teach them about Jesus. It goes interestingly. These were just boys, by the way. So, so get that mental picture. And I learned pretty quickly in meeting with this group of boys, some of whom I'm still in contact with, and they're men now, and I'm very proud of that, but that whenever I would ask them a question, let's say one of them's name was Clay. I would ask Clay, you know, what do you think of this? And he'd be like, Jesus. And then, then he'd go back into his own little world. And I, I would throw it out there. I would ask, well, who's the author of sin? And he wouldn't be paying attention. And he'd say, Jesus. And I'd be like, no, dude, come on, pay attention. But today, when I ask the question, the answer is and always will be, Wow, that was unconvincing. <laughs> but thankfully, my hope is not built on your understanding of Jesus. My hope is built on Jesus himself. And by the end of this sermon, hopefully we understand a little more of how we can enjoy a life with him that changes everything. Uh, we're diving in where Pastor Mark left off. He covered the first couple Beatitudes at camp last weekend. If you missed out, I will try to get those notes so that you can catch up. Uh, for those of you uh, that are just with us today, we're going to start in verse 5 and look at two Beatitudes today, and we're going to try to cover a lot of ground quickly. Uh, so I just want to start with reading the text. If you've got a Bible with you, it's Matthew chapter 5. If you don't, uh, you've probably heard these verses before, so no worries. Uh, but listen carefully as we read God's word. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now remember what Jesus is doing, and this is really his big coming out, his his what I call his opus, his masterpiece of a sermon that we teach hundreds and hundreds of sermons from, and he does it all, and if you kind of time it out, reading it in a very short amount of time. But these statements are intended to teach us a few things. One, there is beauty in an attitude we have that responds to the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor Mark called these the beautiful attitudes 
And I love that reminder. But the second thing about this is that these beautiful attitudes cannot be achieved on our own. Everything Jesus is saying is dependent upon our dependence, our understanding. Remember, uh, blessed are the, pure, the poor in spirit, for they will see God. Uh, that when we wrestle with the fact that we are sinners, that we cannot fix ourselves, it brings us to a point of desperation, I believe was the word we used last week. And it shows us that we are not enough. There's got to be someone more. And his name is? There, that's better. We're getting there. And so these beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes are teaching us that there's a way to live in sync or in step with the kingdom economy. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is God's already and not yet reign over all things. What I mean by not yet is it will be fully consummated when Jesus Christ comes back and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth where we are healed and made right and creation is restored as to what it was meant to be and old things are made new. I was talking with someone this morning that was just reminding me of it's hard to get old. And I agreed. Uh, um, I'm not very old yet, but some days I feel it. And my kids are telling me I've got a pretty important birthday, they think, coming up pretty soon. And they remind me of that every day, that I'm going to be entering my fifth decade. And they're very happy to tell me that over and over and over again. But you know what? I'm not looking forward to the next 30 or however many years I have left. I'm looking forward to eternity. But while I'm here on earth, I still am living in the riches of the kingdom. It's the kingdom already and not yet fulfilled. And so as we're moving our way into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has gone through and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who are sickened by their sin, who are desperate knowing they can't fix it on their own. He moves and he shifts directions. And he said, blessed are the meek. Well, what even, you've heard me talk about meekness many times, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But what What does meek mean for us today? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, If you really think about it, and if you break it down and you look at the different languages and how they used it, ultimately, it always kind of meant the same thing. It was strength that was under control. It was more than just gentleness and humility. It was something bigger than that. It was strength that was brought under control. Uh, One commentator that I read this week, I loved how he said it. It was the true definition of what a gentleman was supposed to be. Remember, in older generations past, being a gentleman, being a sir, brought with it a certain sense of dignity, did it not? We served those in need, we were to have good manners, and just because we were stronger than other people didn't mean we showed that off, right? It was strength that was under control with dignity and with respect. A guy named William Barclay goes a little bit further And he says, or actually this is James Montgomery Boyce, he describes it this way, this is his translation of the, the beatitude. He said, oh, how happy is the man who knows enough not to be satisfied with any partial goodness with which to please God, who's not satisfied with any goodness. Oh, that's the wrong beatitude. That's the next one. We'll get there. I put my slides out of order. This is the text we wanted. 
William Barclay, sorry about that, uh, William Barclay in talking about how do we know how we're supposed to have strength that's under control? How do we know when we're supposed to be angry at the right things and not at the wrong things? And he seeks to explain that for us. And he says like this, if we ask what the right time and the wrong time are, we may say for a general rule in life, the speaking of meekness, that it is never right to be angry for any insult or injury done to ourselves. Right there, some of us are already turned off. That doesn't sound very fair. No, you're right. It doesn't sound very easy and fair. But if we look to Jesus, remember? If we look to him, he always was pointing to the Father. That is something that no Christian must ever resent, but that it is often right to be angry at injuries done to other people. He goes on. He said, selfish anger is always a sin because it's made it all about us. Selfless anger can be one of the great moral dynamics of the world. We should look around at our world and be broken by the injustices. And we should look and say, God, what would you have me do? That's strength that's under control. That's strength that's modeled. I'm going to be angry at the sinfulness of this world, but I'm not going to camp out in my anger and let it consume me. I'm going to seek to be a solution. I'm going to seek to possess the land with the light of Jesus Christ. Because when, when it's written that we will inherit the earth, what it's saying there goes all the way back to Old Testament terminology. Remember when God was beginning with Abraham and all the way through Moses and then through the kings themselves, you will possess the land. That was a promise. God's chosen people were set to be in his promised land. But the problem was that Israel, or even before when Abraham was being given these promises, there was nothing to show for it. They had to walk in faith. God didn't choose the most qualified kingdom to say, you're my chosen people. God chose the least of these. He started from a very unexpected place. And out of that came what was supposed to be the defining quality of the kingdom, of reflecting the glory of God to a world that needs to see it. A meek person is a person that lives in a peace, in a strength that's under control because we're surrendered to God, that in so doing, we can walk this earth saying to God be the glory, great things he has done. That regardless of the circumstances, we can continually be pointing back to God. What was Israel's chief aim? To reflect the glory of God, to point Israel and all other nations back to God. Now, they got detracted and they said, we want to be like everybody else. We want to look the same. Give us a king. Give us that. Do this. Do that. And they missed the point and their reflectors got turned off. But we've got a model of meekness. Listen to this. Jesus says, come to me, all. Underline that in your Bibles if you're looking at Matthew 11. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you stress. Right? Okay, well then why do so many Christians tell me how stressed they are, myself included, of which my wife convicted me of this morning? Why do we walk around like that? Well, maybe because we're not living here. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. By the way, please don't rest right now. Wait till this afternoon. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Not only does Jesus say find rest in me, but he says, I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to be the model that you can follow. There's more to it than just finding rest in me. I am on this earth, the incarnated one, God becoming man and living among us to show us how to live. It's amazing. For I am, now this is where the NIV gets confused and many translations do. They say, for I am gentle and humble in heart. But the same word used in the Beatitude, blessed are the meek, is the same word that's used here. So if we translate them the same, for I am meek in heart, my strength is under control, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We learn meekness from Jesus. We can't do it on our own. We're going to fight for ourselves. That's our natural inclination. The Beatitudes are teaching us you can't do it on yourself. There's a better way, and his name is? Jesus. Getting it. Good. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus and allowing us to live in his light, his righteousness, and his glory. We can't do it on our own. Our strength is going to fail. I mean, look at these guns. They're going to fail. And by the way, I know I'm very small, except in certain areas. But we need the strength of the Lord. Remember what I asked at the beginning. Is God bigger than our circumstances, than our situations, and than our pain? And the answer is yes, because his strength is perfect. And we find rest in him. Uh, Melissa told me about a guy that defined... um, this shalom that we're promised we can live in, in an interesting way. He defined it as not a spirit prone to chaos, but the peace of shalom, the finding rest in the almighty hands of God, is led to a spirit of peace that finds rest in the world when everything is going sideways around us. That strength that's under control. That strength that says, I depend on God to get me through this situation and I will be given this land. I will live in the light of his glory and I will reflect that to others as he continues to work out his promises in and through people like me. The meek will inherit the earth. What does a meek person look like? Well, Dory at the beginning, our call to worship, read us Psalm 37, and Jesus was seemingly alluding to this when he quotes, the meek will inherit the earth. And as you look at the promises in Psalm 37, we learn that a meek person is one that's committed to the Lord, one that is still impatient. So we first learn that a meek person trusts in the Lord first, that a meek person is confident in the ways of God more than they're confident in themselves. That's verse 7 of Psalm 37. And then the big one and the tricky one, a meek person, and this is what I read from uh, the quote I read earlier, a, a meek person is slow to anger and wrath. They are surrendered to God's time and God's economy. And they're living in a place of shalom, a peace that destroys chaos. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes my life can feel very chaotic. And I just, I need to be with Jesus. Because on my own, I'm not going to fix the chaos. I'm going to add to it. Don't we do that? Don't we do an awful lot of that? But interestingly, Jesus doesn't just stop there and tell us the meek will inherit the earth. He describes very powerful priorities and he moves on. And what seemingly, we don't know exactly his timing, but he moves right on to then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? For they will be, now many translations today say filled. You can write in the margins there, satisfied, stuffed. And I want us to understand what was going on here. What was Jesus saying? Because when we, we look at it on the front, we get, okay, yeah, we should hunger and thirst for the righteous things. And it, should, it feels very much like a do this, do that. It feels very prescriptive, right? It, it's not. It's descriptive of a relationship. It's descriptive of, a, of what a life living in Christ really looks like. But you got to pull out some Greek, and that is not my strength, but uh, thankfully there are smarter uh, scholars than me that help us understand this. And we need to see clearly what Jesus does when he switches how he speaks, when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, in the Greek language, it's generally a rule of grammar that if you used verbs like hungering and thirsting, they would be followed by nouns in what's called the genitive case. What do you mean by that? I'll explain. A genitive would be peace of mind, right? You don't just have peace mind, you have peace of mind. Uh, you don't just have love God, you have the love of God. See how it changes the meaning slightly? Or object of faith and so on. The Greek would express a feeling of hunger by saying something like, I am hungry for of food. Not all the food, some food, right? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce explains it further. He says, this particular use of the genitive case has an unusual characteristic on the basis of which it's called blah, blah, blah. Thus, when the Greek would say, I'm hungry for food, he was saying that he was hungry only for part of the food of the world, not all of it. And so that's how most people would have expected this text to be translated. I hunger and thirst for a little of the righteousness of God. Right? It makes sense, even grammatically in English. Or if you look and you're sitting at a table and you say, pass me the bread. Now, unless you're that guy, you're not asking to be passed all of the bread for you and you put it on your plate. If you are that guy, manners, come on, you know better. You're asking for some of it so that you can have some and then share with others. But what Jesus did, amazingly, was he switched tenses here. He switched ways of speaking. Instead of saying, pass me the bread, some of it, he actually said, give it all. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all of the righteousness of God. Not just a little, all of it. It's called the accusative tense. It's all-inclusive. Instead of the word righteousness occurring in the genitive, it occurs in the accusative. Its meaning is that the one who hungers and thirsts as Christ intends him to hunger and thirst must hunger, not after partial or imperfect righteousness, either his own or some people even think that maybe God's only half righteous, but after all of him. 
He must long for a perfect righteousness. And this means, according to Boyce, therefore a righteousness equal to and identical with God's. So the hungering and thirsting of righteousness that I'm supposed to be all about is the same as the righteousness of God. Well, how in the world is that even possible? Because, Mike, I know you're a sinner, and maybe I might be too. So what do we do with that? Well, can we dig in further? Can we go another step further? We need to understand that when we're thinking of righteousness, righteousness is never meant just like we shouldn't be self-angry. We shouldn't be angry at things that just hurt us. We should be pushing our anger toward the injustices of the world in the same way those that hunger and thirst for righteousness are hungering and thirsting not only for personal holiness, but justice around the world. The in the inseparable nature of those two things is when we're holy, we are seeking justice for all mankind. But what does it mean to hunger and thirst for all of God's righteousness when we don't feel like we live up to it? Well, if you remember a story that Jesus was credited with uh, in Mark chapter 11, he's walking along and he comes to a fig tree that had borne no fruit. You remember what he does to the fig tree? What's he do to it? He curses it. He says, you're never going to bear fruit again. Uh, And then he walks on, and that's it. It's a a weird little story. doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it. And then what does he go right into? He walks in, and in meek strength, strength that was under control, measured and just right for what was needed, he overturns the tables at the temple. Why in the world would he walk into his house and do that? because there was oppression and there was self-righteousness going on all over the temple and the people that were suffering were the poor, were the little guy, were those that we in Christ are supposed to be protecting. What was happening? Well, a poor person wasn't able to afford a lamb to sacrifice on the altar for forgiveness. So they were allowed to sacrifice a dove. But what would happen is they would go in, and you see this, they would go in and they would hand the priest their dove that they had saved up and brought from home or wherever. They feel like this is pure and spotless. It's, it's a great one. The priest would look at it very quickly and say, no, 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 that's not good enough. You have to go get one from the temple courts where the price was greatly jacked up and where those priests would get a kickback. They were making money on sacrifices meant for God. Okay? They were cheating. Any way you look at it, that's what they were doing. And Jesus allows for none of that. Self-righteous behavior, religion that makes us look good rather than glorifies God, Jesus wants nothing to do with. And he shows it. Strength that's under control, seeking justice for the oppressed. That's what he does. His strength under control. Him saying self-righteousness doesn't do the job. And if you look back at that fig tree, it's interesting that he cursed a fig tree because when you go all the way back, as uh, some of us heard yesterday, to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned and they got caught. And so what did they do when they got caught? They found some fig leaves and, and the original text there says they covered their bare essentials. So the guy we heard yesterday, his name Chris Gore, he spoke and he said, basically for the man, for Adam, he put on a Speedo 
of fig leaves, and for the woman, he put on a bikini. So just the basics were covered, nothing else. But all of their sin was still on display. It was still there. Their self-righteous act of trying to cover up their sin and their nakedness was not sufficient. So what do we read a few verses later is God is dealing with Adam and Eve. He covers them with skin. And if you know how you skin an animal, you would have sliced the throat. And likely, uh, textual indicators here say that it was, they were covered with the skin of a sheep or a lamb. Uh-oh, you're starting to figure out where this is going. The lamb would have been slain. It would have been used as a covering to cover all of their nakedness. They were covered by God using the blood and the skin of a lamb. It wasn't their righteousness that allowed Adam and Eve to continue on. It was the righteousness of God covering them and protecting them. You move forward, and what do we learn about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. His body, his blood spilled. What do we read later on? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that look like? God clothing us in his righteousness because we can't do it on our own. We're trying with self-righteous coverings of just covering the spots we hope protect us. And God's like, no, my righteousness covers all of you. You're all mine. Your past is in the past. You are now filled protected, and covered in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says we hunger and thirst for his righteousness, who are we hungering and thirsting for? Jesus. Ooh, one's a week. Thank you, Lala. Good. The great news is, you know, we think about this, Mike, I don't even know how to do that. How do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're already righteous. Did you know that? Yeah, already happened. Are we living in it? Sometimes we struggle, but that doesn't change our standing with God. What is righteousness? Ultimately, right standing before God. We've got Pastor Tom Mangum here who could love to tell you all about how EE teaches that need for right standing before God. It's critical, and we can't do it on our own. Just like we can't be meek on our own, I won't be righteous. I will still choose self-destructive patterns of behavior on my own. I need someone to cover me, to protect me from myself and from this world. And there is only one person that does that perfectly, and his name is Jesus. We are covered in him. We learn from him. Our power is from him. How do we demonstrate the characteristics of the kingdom? Well, just like the psalmist said in Psalm 37, we surrender. And we say, God, I will trust in your timing and in your ways. My strength is in you. My righteousness is you. And I cannot do these things on my own. My life is a life of rest in your power in your control. Somebody asked me the question yesterday, what would happen if I stopped trying to become somebody and simply aligned myself with Jesus Christ because I'm already his? 
What if the church spent much more time talking about the greatness of Jesus Christ and letting him convict of sin rather than chasing sin down first and then hoping they find Jesus along the way? What if we were known to be much more about grace and walking with people through the journey as we hunger and thirst for righteousness together, as we use our strength not to chuck them with the judgmental Bible, but to walk them, letting the Holy Spirit refine and soften their hearts? What if that person that so hurt us, so wounded us, that sickness that is so defiling and crippling us, we said, Lord, it's yours. I will trust in you. And we found rest right there. What would that do to how we lived our lives? I think the answer is pretty simple. I think we would have awfully beautiful attitudes. I really do. I think it would be a much different atmosphere when we came in to celebrate what Jesus has done this week. Because we'd have so many stories of what he was up to. I resisted something uh, that was happening in our community group because it wasn't getting organized in the way I expected it to. You ever have trouble managing your expectations of how God is to do things? And finally, a few days ago, I was just like, no, 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 we've just got to obey and we've got to see what the Lord will do with this. And it was about baptism. A number of people in our community group don't come to our church and have recently come to know Jesus. And they're like, how do we get baptized? And the tradition is to put up a bunch of hoops and say it. And we thought, well, maybe we should do this or that. Finally, I was, I was reading Acts and I'm like, no, nah, the point is they want to be baptized. They believe in Jesus Christ. They have called him Lord. Praise Jesus. Let's go tell the world. So this afternoon, we're going to baptize seven people. How awesome is that? Oh, come on. You should be excited. If that doesn't excite us, then we've got to go back to here. If that doesn't get us stoked, realizing that the power of God at work in broken people like us changes hearts and draws them to Jesus, we've missed it. Our existence is about the glory of God, and we reflect that by our attitudes. When we are hidden in Jesus, our attitudes show the world a peace that passes any understanding they can figure out. When our strength is surrendered to him, we fight for the right things and not just for what we want, right? But too often we're like toddlers that fight for what we want. I do. It's not fair, God, why? Mike, I'm not fair. I've just, and I already paid the price for your sins. Go let people know that hunger for me. At this point of the morning, most of you are getting hungry. And Jesus finishes this statement with another promise, and I love it. Remember what we started with is the question. Jesus says, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. It's revolutionary. The keys to the kingdom, the keys to fullness. Remember, this is Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. You who come to me will hunger no more. You will thirst no more. Uh, I came that you might have life and live it to the fullest. You get that idea. Fullness and satisfaction are found in one place and his name is? Jesus. Getting a little better. It's all about Jesus. The Beatitudes are a beautiful reflection of what Jesus is doing throughout time. 
Maybe you're in a pickle right now. Maybe the circumstances you find yourself in, you don't have any idea how God is going to work those out. Hey, guess what? I don't either. But I know the one that does. And I know he is with you every step of the way. He will give you the righteous strength to live through it and thrive. How do you thrive? Read Ephesians. You'll figure it out. But not only that, but he'll keep making you hungrier for more of him. And then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because our focus is on him. The problems of this world don't seem so big. That's what that hymn means. It's amazing. It's the only time where I think I've eaten and I want more. Oh, that's not true. I've had pie. I want more pie when I eat the first bite, right? I want more. We can never get enough of Jesus, but yet he's constantly filling us up. Why? Because he is bigger than all of our circumstances. He is bigger than your sickness. He is bigger than your loss. He is bigger than your pain, and he is bigger than your confusion. The question is, do you believe that? Maybe today you've heard a little bit about Jesus, and you wonder, well, how do I even know him? I would love to tell you, and it's really simple. He invites you to believe in Jesus Christ and himself, that he is the Savior, that he is the one that can purify you, as Doug shared earlier, from our sins and it's only him. And he says, if you call on his name, you will be saved. So you say, Lord, I've sinned. I need you. Please save me. And he does. And he does. And he does. Are you under control? Maybe that anger that you know is just right there is coming out in how you treat other people. Well, my question for you is, are you under his control? Are you surrendered to him? Are you hungry and thirsty? Well, it is lunchtime, Mike, and you're still not done, so yes. Is your hunger and thirst for him? Is it a desperation that we heard about, the poor in spirit that no, we can't fix ourselves, we just need more of Jesus? Who are we wearing? You know, I've, I've, I've spent time hanging out with uh, some people that worked in the finance world. And they used to tell me it was always an important thing to make sure their tie had the right label on it. Or, or in certain circles, that was a big deal to make sure you wore the right designer, the right person. I'm wearing the ultimate designer. And it's not Uniglow. It's Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. Are you? Are you hungry for more of him? Are you saying, Lord, here's my life, I'm yours. Let's pray together. Lord, I say this with all confidence, knowing that I'm still learning, but I'm satisfied. You're enough. You're all I need. I pray that while you're all I need, I would never stop growing in love and insight of who you are and that we, the church, would bring other people with us. I pray that we wouldn't be clothed in our own self-righteous acts, but we would be clothed in you and you alone. Because you are the God who saves, and you are the God who guides and leads. Give us strength for the journey, but may it be your strength, not our own. 
Give us hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that we have full access to you through Jesus Christ himself. And may we live, abide, and dwell there. In your name I pray. Amen. In closing, um, I'd like to change a little bit in here. I'd like to go back and let us sing again that song, Hungry, Hungry I Come to You. May this be our response to him. <laughs>